would, what's the main complexity that I guess an outsider doesn't understand? I think that the hard thing is that you look, it's the frustration involved. Like you look at it and you go, people clearly don't want to be addicts. They don't want to continue using, but they, but they do despite getting what seems to be all the help in the world, right? You're getting family, friends. I've seen the hardest part is telling the parents, like you have to stop enabling your child. If it means kicking him out of the house because he's being abusive and violent and continues to use in your household, you have to kick him out and he's got to live at the Salvation Army or he's got a lighthouse. That's, that's what you have to do. And so for them, they're like, what? But eventually it, it hits for them that that's just, the reality is there needs to be the, the, the pros of using need to be overshadowed by the cons. Like you need to get to a point where, especially people in their addiction, they realize that like, this is a bad, I, I can't continue doing this. And that's usually where I meet them. They come into detox at rock bottom. So that's the, that's what I get to work with. But the cool thing is though, you meet them at rock bottom. Um, usually they get medication, they stay for seven days. So it's an inpatient treatment. Uh, and then that you get to see the progress from this person who comes in an absolute mess on day one to when they leave on day seven, they look great. Everything looks great. And it's great. But then they leave and you don't know what happens until they come back sometimes a month later, sometimes the same night. And you're like, what? We just went through all this, did this entire thing. And that's just the frustration a little bit is one of the big things I think people don't understand too, is that it's just, it's just part of the, they say relapse is part of the process. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but I think that is a, a big part of it is there's learning involved. You have to look at where you're making mistakes and where you're not making changes and continue to adapt. Oh man. Yeah. That's a lot to unpack. So when, what have you seen as a consistent theme with the people who are successful once they leave? I think the biggest thing that people do that, that helps the system in, in, in recovery is just accountability is huge and self-awareness. That seems to be the biggest trend for people that I see who, who maintain that recovery is just that ability to look themselves in the mirror and say, I got to make some changes here. And if I don't, I'm going to die or I'm going to continue to just, but you, you, it takes a lot. Like if you go to, I've been to AA meetings before and I have met some clients who uh, invited me to their like one year birthdays and stuff. They call them birthdays. So you get to go there and they've been sober for a whole year and it's great. And everyone in the room has seen this person probably show up to their AA meeting for a year straight. Um, and they get to know this person really well. So it's awesome to get to hear all these stories because you only meet them for a week. Generally, you meet these people for a week and then they're out and about. And you don't really know if they're doing well, they're doing not well, right? Until sometimes people will call in and just say, hey, but um, you go to these meetings and, and uh, you hear these people talk and it's really cool to get to see the level of accountability and self-awareness in these meetings where people can just sit there they can hash out all the negative things that they're currently dealing with. Like it's just, there's a mindfulness awareness that just happens. And I leave there as somebody who's never struggled with addiction before. And I go, wow, I just got this warm feeling in my heart where it's like, man, I wish people were always this accountable and always this self-aware where they could express themselves like, Hey, you know what? I had a bad day today. Like, and this is how I'm feeling versus because a lot of people just hold that in. They've never addiction to for it forces it on you, that accountability and that self-awareness in a sense. So I think that's one real thing I see as a common trait is just, again, that, that mindfulness, that accountability, self-awareness for, for lots of us, we apply it to exercise and other things, but for addicts, it's like, you have to exert literally just towards sobriety, which a lot of people don't have to worry about. I mean, I don't wake up every morning and go, you know what? I really got to, I got to use a lot of energy today to not drink. That's just something that doesn't even cross my mind. And for most people, that's the case, but for others, it's like, I have to actually exercise, discipline, and continue to engage in the behaviors that have gotten me sober in order to prevent myself from relapsing. So that's, that's a big one too. Oh, man. Structure so, routine. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds they should, they have to 
the ones you've seen successful, they keep the routine that got them there. And, but at the same time, they are willing to make that complete change. Yeah. Like, and that's the hard part. You got to make those changes in order to get sober in the first place. Like, I mean, you can't, I can tell people all the time, like many people that I work with, they've been using for months, years, decades, some of them. Right. And I say, you can't come in here for seven days. We make jokes all the time. Like (laughs) people leave after three days. Like, you know what? I think I feel good. I got it all all under control. You're like, Oh, you're cured. Are (laughs) you? So we kind of, we bust, you know, we bust people's balls a little bit. Uh, Because we real and then reality is they end up coming back and they're like, oh, I wasn't ready. You're like, mm, of course you weren't. You used for forty years, sort of a bit of an exact say fourteen even. <laughs> Someone who uses for fourteen years, you're not figuring out sobriety in three days, right? So you have to change the people that you're hanging out with. All the variables that led you to being an addict still exist during that seven days in treatment. And some people will go twenty eight days. There's longer term treatment centers now, uh, but all those variables still exist you so you have to make some serious changes cutting people off and that's that's the whole the old cliche of of addiction is just like people places things you have to change a lot of stuff oh that's that's what you people places things so yeah it's a big it's a big thing in in addiction in general it's like the big three things that you need to change which is literally like everything (laughs) yeah absolutely so that's the joke it's like people places things like oh that seems pretty simple it's only three things it's literally everything (laughs) for most people so yeah from what you're saying though everything you've said it seems the odds are completely stacked against absolutely you. yeah and that's the hard thing that's what people don't realize you know uh when people come to detox we don't like to just throw it out at them like that but real reality is like i don't have a, a clear statistic but i would argue like 90 percent of people that come through are going to relapse and that's you know it's a very again it's like I relate it another analogy here. It's like a diet, right? A lot of people will do really well on a diet for like 12 weeks or even six weeks, right? A lot of people, they exert that willpower. They can just kill it. They can do a really, they're starting to lose weight. They're starting to see that progress. They start feeling pretty good. Six weeks, maybe 12 weeks. Most people don't build a long-term sustainable diet. So what happens is after that six weeks, 12 weeks, they start to feel really good. They go, yeah, I deserve like a cheat meal. And then they binge eat. And then that, you know, that cascades into feelings of guilt or this and that, and then it keeps going, right? And that's what happens with that. I've met people, so in, in the AANA space, there's there's 30-day, 60-day, 90-day pins. So for every 30-day sobriety, you go to a meeting, and they have a little bit of a thing, you get a pin. Um, and I've met people who've done their 90 days sobriety and relapse on day 91 because they go, I did it. I accomplished my goal. Sweet. Let's celebrate. Let's have a couple drinks. And then they relapse, and they go right back off the wagon. So that it's, it's a very, it's a mental game. Addiction is all... It's very psychological. Obviously, there's genetic and you know physiological variables as well, but it, a lot of it's just it's behavioral, structural, psychological. It's yeah, it's a lot. What have you found that actually helps? Um, I mean, detox is important. I think people. The reality is, when you're looking at any addiction to substances, for the most part, and some are actually more dangerous than others. So alcohol and benzos, which are like anti-anxiety medications, are the two you can essentially, they the withdrawal can actually be dangerous. It can cause seizures, crazy high blood pressure, um, and those seizures can lead to death. Like they can cause people to die. So alcohol withdrawal and benzo withdrawal, two of the most deadly, they are the only, the deadliest with drugs you can withdraw from. The only deadly ones essentially that we know of. People think crystal meth is bad, heroin's bad, fentanyl is bad. They're horrible drugs, don't get me wrong, but you're not going to die from crystal meth withdrawal uh, and you're not going to die from opiate withdrawal unless it leads to like severe illness where you're like diarrhea because you do get sick. 
uh, puking and diarrhea to the point where you get like dehydrated, but those are like secondary effects. The, the, the drug itself will not cause uh, any direct death, but they're super crystal meth, very psychologically dependent. I mean, when people use crystal meth, the stimulants in general, because you get that feeling of that, that high, that stimulant high coming off of it is very psychological, extreme depression, uh, lethargic uh, fatigue, all that kind of stuff. The side effects or the, the withdrawal isn't generally, I, I want to say that you, you do become chemically dependent, but it's more so on a psychological, it's more psychological than anything. Uh, whereas opiates, there's a major chemical dependency aspect you get because you're blocking those endorphins. Your body decides that like, oh, we don't need to release these anymore. We've been getting it from an external source, much like other drugs. What happens if you take an external source, your body shuts it down. So all the, the natural painkillers that you've naturally produce have been shut down. You also then stop taking the drug. It takes a while for your body to get those things back online again. Um, so people come in and they're like deep tissue pain because everything hurts. People say they, my bones hurt. It's not actually your bones, but it's like deep muscle tissue pain, uh, nausea, vomiting, extreme restlessness. Like you can't sleep. So you know, not being able to sleep, teamed with high anxiety, restlessness, deep muscle pain. It's just extremely like torturous and excruciating. Uh, but there is no, there's no, it's not going to kill you, but it feels like you're going to die. That's what, that's what people always say. Opioid withdrawal. Opioid withdrawal. Yeah. It's not going to kill you, but it feels like you're going to die. Um, but again, what happens is because your tolerance to opioids drops fairly quickly from what I understand, a lot of people say, well, I don't get it. They're an opiate withdrawal. Then they died. It's like, well, usually what happens is because the withdrawal is so severe, they use a little bit and sometimes they get, and then they overdose. So usually when someone dies in opioid withdrawal, it's usually because they actually used to, to offset the withdrawal unbeknownst to everybody else. And then they end up overdosing because either a, their tolerances drop so low or B, they get a bad batch and they end up taking something that they, because you get desperate, right? Like I've seen, and we don't even book people. So there is a, there's a protocol for opioid withdrawal. I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but there's a, there's an, uh, a protocol for opioid, opioid withdrawal. And, uh, when we give that up, we don't even book people unless we can make sure they're medicated. Cause I, we used to not have doctors on the weekends. Uh, and we'd say, Hey, can you, we can book you for Friday night. You won't be able to see a doctor till Monday morning. And people just say, Nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not suffering for two days in a, you know, I could do that at home. Like I need to see, I want to make sure I can get on meth, like medication. So we do have medications that help with the withdrawal. There are opioid replacements like Suboxone and methadone. We can talk about that later. Um, but yeah, so long story short, Alcohol and benzos are the two major ones that you can have major withdrawal, um, chemical dependency, opioids, also chemical dependency, not necessarily like super dangerous, just feels crappy. And then crystal meds, very psychological, but I think that that's a big component of it is the fact that when you're coming off a substance, detox is important because you can, you can end up getting extremely, extremely sick to the point of death. Um, we, I've seen that so many times and you're just shake guys are just shaking like a leaf, like can't even sign their own names because the tremors associated with alcohol withdrawal are so severe. Um, and the anxiety is so severe too. Right. So then on top of that anxiety, you get major depression and people in that state sometimes are suicidal, things like that. So, um, that, that can be a big thing. A big factor initially getting sober is just getting through that chemical dependency aspect. Our goal is to like, I, I tell clients all the time, my, our goal is to get you here and clear the fog. So that you can have by day seven, um, a, a better idea of what you want to do without having this drug infiltrating and you're still going to have cravings and things like that, but this drug isn't causing this fog. You know, you're not shaking like a leaf. And cause when that, that chemical dependency aspect is just so strong, it just overpowers everyone's desire to want to get sober because you need to clear that out before you can even think straight. So you can actually get them detoxed 
in that seven day period? Usually, yeah, for most drugs. I mean, it, opiates. Some people are still feeling a little bit. Uh, it it depends. Like alcohol, is generally out of your system pretty quick. Crystal meth. People sleep for like two, three days. It doesn't mean they're back to normal. Like even after seven days, you're still experiencing the psychological side effects of continued use for what could have been years. Um, but you're at that point where you feel a lot better on day seven. Oh, yeah, I talked to most, but you're probably 90, 95% by day seven compared to day one. Yeah. Um, so that, that does a lot to help people make better decisions in that, in that regard. But for sure. So you kind of take them from a drowning state, yeah. head above water or shoulders above water where they can actually start thinking yeah. clearly. Yeah. You kind of, yeah. You bring them into the kiddie pool a little bit. Like the water's still there, but you're like, all right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can, you can, you can gauge what's going on. Okay. I can actually breathe up here. Like I know what's going on. Yeah. It's oh, a good, that's a good way to put it. I think. Holy crap. Oh. Yeah. Um, and there's stuff I still, even days where I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Like people make decisions that just seem so irrational that don't make any sense. Even people will come in and my days like today, minus 40, we have a brief unit. They'll come in intoxicated minus 40. They have nowhere else to stay. They're homeless. We give them a warm bed and they'll just be belligerent and agitated. We'll say, why don't you just relax and get some sleep? They'll say, screw you. I'm leaving. You're like, what? We just gave, like, we're giving you a warm bed to stay. No, screw it. I'll sleep outside. I'm like, what? We're not, it's so confusing. And then they'll leave and just minus 40. Like what? Uh, and that's, and, and it, there's nothing we can do. It's an involuntary program. We can't force people to stay. So if anyone wants to wander out at minus 40, that's, if they're extremely intoxicated, we call the police because they're obviously in a state where they don't know, they can't make the right decisions. But some people are seemingly clear of mind and to some degree anyway and then they leave and you're like i don't, that guy's gonna end up dead on a corner somewhere there's nothing we can do about it like i can't force somebody to get help or to stay in, in a warm spot so that's always something that to this day still boggles me i'm like what it just doesn't make sense you know yeah. what causes so does it go well and then they go screw you or what how does it normally go i think some people are just so they're so miserable because of their addiction like they're just in such a bad state that they just don't care at all whether they live or die too because a lot of a lot of people that come into the brief unit they don't ever try to get sober so we're basically in a sense it sounds like we're enabling them but we're basically just preventing them from dying or ending up in the hospital costing other resources it's a warm bed to sleep in so we can prevent paramedics from running around having to pick people up off the street right it gives them a nice warm so it's a it's a good spot in that regard but in general there's really nothing we do in terms of like actually helping people achieve sobriety in the brief unit anyway so that's where they come in people are intoxicated they sleep for 12 to 24 hours and they just leave um ideally we encourage them like hey you should go down to social services try to get some housing today or get in touch with an outreach worker but some people just don't want it they're like no i'm good okay or why don't you like get your name on the list for the social program we'll try to get you sober for a week and then we can get you on your feet again they're like no i'm good and you're like what and i talked to one guy about it i was like man why don't you like you're here all the time why don't we put you on the list for social We'll get you sobered up for a week. We'll meet with a case manager. Maybe we can get you some housing, do all that stuff. We'll get you like, get you going. And he's like, you know what? I, I've been doing this for so long. I've been, he was like early forties. And he's like, I've been using since I was like 13. I don't know how to work. I don't know how to do laundry. I don't know how to go grocery shopping. Like all these basic adulting things that most people do. He's like, I don't know how to do them. I would need someone to hold my hand and teach me. So that kind of like, changed it for me where I was like, this is a lifestyle that they've gotten so used to there. It's actually more comforting than have to do. It's almost stressful 
for us, it's like, don't you want to live a good life? Don't you want to like have goals and achievements and like, you know, do fun stuff? And they're like, no, that's just sounds stressful to me. Like I want to just continue doing what I'm doing because it's what I'm comfortable with. And you're like, oh, okay. I, I kind of get it from that sense. It's like, it seems so irrational, but in that regard where it's like, this is what I'm used to. That's what you're used to. Who are you to say that I'm doing something that's, that's, that's wrong. And you're like, well, it just doesn't seem like the lifestyle 99% of us would want to live. And he's like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And you're like, okay, I can't really, if that's what you want to do, I can't tell you otherwise, right? Let's say perfect world, because you only have seven days with them. Yeah, I only have seven days, yeah. What would be your ideal from your experience? If you, oh, if you had to get, let's say, you had to get your brother off something, what are you doing? If it was, say, my brother or somebody in a severe case, I, th I honestly think, like, there are programs out there. Structure's huge. And, again, I've talked about this whole, like, adult, basic adult life skills that a lot of people miss out on because of years of trauma and, and, and horrible upbringings and things like that. I would think, and there are programs, there's one called Teen Challenge. I think they do a year. They do a full year, and it's, like, you're, like, you're doing your chores, and, like, it's fairly structured. It's very religious as well, but the structure, I think, is huge, and I think they have a really good success rate for people who complete the program of a whole year because they're taking people who are who have absolutely no structure in their lives and giving them that structure for a consistent year, and then when they get out, they just can build on that momentum. I would honestly think something similar to that, like almost not a boot camp style, but like a thing or place where people can go and just rediscover a sense of purpose and structure and responsibility because that's... If you have no purpose and you have no responsibility in life, then they're like, what, why, why wouldn't I just use every day? There's nothing going on. Like, you know, so, and it makes it hard to get sober because then you get sober and you're like, all of a sudden, I think there's, there's this dream that sobriety sells where I'm like, and I tell people too, like, you will feel better. But I think a lot of people think like they're going to get sober and their life is all of a sudden just going to be amazing. Like, oh, wow. I'm a, everything's amazing now. It's like, whoa. It's like reality is drugs are fun because they, they make they're fun. They're addictive because they're fun and they make you feel good. Right? So then that you actually think wipe the slate clean and then give them a year of structure. I yeah, I would think like some type of like intensive intensive like I think 28 days was generally like the 28 days was kind of the the standard like dopamine detox like appropriate length for most people this to assume that like you come out after 28 days and you're relatively back to normal. There's studies, I mean, it depends on the drug too, but there's studies now showing that like, even with, like with crystal meth up to a year of sobriety and your brain still hasn't re-regulated like dopamine pathways to the point to somebody who's never used before. So there's long-term, there can be long-term negative effects. And again, it's not, I don't think they're completely debilitating to the point where people are like absolutely miserable every single day. But again, you're like, you get a little bit of like anhedonia or apathy or you're doing things that you normally would make people who are sober enjoy. They're just like, I don't really get this sense of joy anymore. And then just cause of the long-term damage of, of long-term stimulant use and stuff like that. So I think that's a big thing is just helping people recognize that like during that period of sobriety, you're going to have points of feeling like, I don't really want to do this. You might get bored. Uh, but also recognizing like there's Again, that whole discipline versus motivation, right? Motivation comes and goes. So you're going to have points where you're super motivated and you want to do something and you're excited about something. That same thing applies to sobriety, I think, where you have to have, you might not want to go to that 12-step meeting. You're not, you might not want to be sober that day, but then when you go, you feel better, right? Like going to the gym. I don't want to go to the gym, but it's part of your, if it's part of your daily structure, your daily routine, part of your goals, you go, you feel better after and you're like, okay, I'm glad I went, right? So 
much alike to, to other behaviors, I think at the end of the day, sobriety is just a behavior. It's a habit. The same way you get into addiction is by essentially a habit. Unfortunately, one that's really, really uh, just hammers your brain on a, a dopamine perspective when you're using certain substances. But you have to be able to kind of take the other path and, and channel that energy into sobriety and create those habits around things that are going to help you stay sober. They say that you, there's actually a, you can actually love an addict to death. And I think that's what happens lots of times with, uh, with these family members is because they don't understand that there needs to be a, a line drawn somewhere so that people can hit that proverbial rock bottom so they can make those changes necessary. Yeah. But, yeah. So they need that one defining or many defining moments to actually make a change. Yeah, I would say there needs to be, there needs to be something. Yeah. Um, usually it's something negative. Sometimes there's something positive. Like sometimes it's like um, guys are like, I'm, I'm a grandparent now. My daughter just had a baby and I need to be there for my grandparent. And this is like kind of their rock bottom. It's like, I don't want my grandchild growing up thinking that their grandpa is an alcoholic and not in their lives. Right. Cause my daughter's not going to let me be around if I'm drinking. So that, that that's like a positive life event. Okay. Your grandpa, no, it's great. Um, but that's like a sign like, okay, I need to make that change. Right. So I would say most are negative consequences you start to view the negative consequences and go okay i need to make a change but sometimes there's positive ones <laughs> so again it's it, it's variable for everybody but yeah. yeah so you said before you have clients come in after seven days you see them again you see them again yeah how draining is this for you it's hard man it, I, I gotta say it, it is definitely hard. when i the first few years you just kind of brush it off and you're like yeah i know it is what it is it's, it's addiction like you just kind of get used to it but lately like the last couple of years it just get, it seems harder and i don't know if it's because i'm getting necessarily more attached to people when they come in because i've you, you do have to have a detached empathy like reality is like i know the nature when you understand the nature of addiction we have people die all the time like we go to work and it's like oh do you remember so-and-so oh yeah they were just here like two weeks ago oh they killed themselves you're like oh well, that sucks like but you're just like it's the natural course of outcome for anybody who's suffering from an addiction so logically you have to understand that like that is the nature of the, the the business that you're in essentially every once in a while someone will come back and will they'll say hey i'm it's been two months two months i'm still doing good the one girl I told you about who i went on a to her one year birthday she's yeah. at her th three year mark three or mark in may or march or she might be at she might be at the four year mark come may but she's actually doing her practicum oh. at our detox now beast mode yeah so she's <laughs> killing it so it's great that those are great and like people don't understand like the gratitude is so <laughs> fulfilling for us like man that's that's awesome that's great to hear that's so sweet because we don't hear it very often i would say maybe maybe five percent of people that that come through actually like follow up and let us know if they're doing good or you know or actually maintaining like long-term sobriety and they let us know like yeah things are going good that's great and you're like awesome i knew you'd do good because you put the work in you know i've talked to guys who are in recovery and they're like i can go to rider games now people drinking all around me i don't feel triggered at all if anything it's a deterrent because i look around i'm like i'm glad i'm not that drunk idiot uh so i'm like that's good that's where you need to be like, that's where you want to be you don't want to live your life in a bubble where you're like afraid to do anything because you're going to be triggered by everything but you want to get to the point where you have strong craving management techniques where you can recognize that like okay there's i can do the things i want to do because you forget too, like fishing golfing a lot of these guys, I mean, a lot of alcoholics, there are a lot of alcoholics who drink alone. Like there's some people who they say, Kale, I don't drink. Cause I always used to use this thing, think too. One of the big myths I, I used to think was that like, these are people who partied in their youth and then got addicted. And now they just like 
can't get out of the party phase, right? They're just like hung up on this party phase, drinking and using drugs all the time because they just can't give up and grow up and get out of the party phase. But then I talk to like 90% of people and they're like, no, I drink by myself at home and that's all I do. I'll just chug a Mickey and sit at home. Or like sometimes there's like, again, there's more, you know, functional addicts where they're like, I, I golf and I drink way too much or I fish and I drink way too much and this and that. So those things can be major triggers for people because it's like, they're like regular activities for a lot of us, like fishing, golfing. These are all fun things to do. But if those are major triggers for you, you can't, you literally can't do them for a while. So that can be hard for people to understand too, though. Like if you're going to feel triggered by these events, you have to take a bit of a hiatus until you're in a stable place. Give yourself some room, some sobriety where those cravings aren't going to be as impactful to return to those activities. And it's hard, right? Weddings. If you're an alcoholic, you go to an open bar wedding. It's like, are you sure it's a good idea? You might have to tell people like, I can't, I can't attend your wedding. And it, that's going to be like hard conversations, tough, tough things to, yeah. to, to, to go through, but you got to take care of yourself first. Right. And if even something as enjoyable as a wedding can be a major trigger for you, you might have to, you know, think of an alternative. So, yeah. What set that guy apart? Who's able to go to a rider game and see people drinking beer. How did he do this? I think it was years of sobriety. If I remember, he had like seven years of sobriety. Okay. And it was uh, the deterrent effect of being able to look around and say, I'm, I would be that, he, his words, not mine, I'd be that drunk asshole right now, swilling around, swirling, spilling my beer everywhere if I decided to have even one beer right now. So he's like, I'm really glad I didn't make the decision to drink. So that's for him. It's like, it's like a deterrent. It's just like, nope. If I do that, I'm going to end up like that idiot. And that's not where I want to be. So for him, it was just easy. It was just like psychological. The psychological was there. Physiologically, cravings probably weren't very strong because it's been seven years since his last drink. It's like anything, right? Like when you go through any type of loss or any major event that impacts your brain, generally with time, it gets easier to process. You know, grandparent passes away. Your dog passes away. I remember when my dog passed away. That was like seven years ago. I was a mess that first day. And then for the first couple of weeks, it still hits. And then now I can sit here and I'm like, ah, it was so long ago. It's sad, but it's like, I don't have any emotional attachment anymore. I think that kind of emotional attachment, emotional detachment just happens with time in general, especially when it comes to addiction too. There's sure. I mean, I've met people. It's, it's not permanent though. Like I don't think there's any, I've met people who've been 15 years sober and relapsed. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. And you're like, how? Everything was going great. There could be, there's a variety of different things that happen. Life changes, trauma, divorce. Sometimes I've met people who relapsed because they got married and they went, I deserve to have a Mickey on my wedding day. And then it just like that Mickey turns into, you know, continues to kind of escalate as the days go on. And then it turns into a full blown, full blown relapse. But it's, it's so, that's what I mean. It's, it's very irrational for for anyone thinking, listening, going 15 years of sobriety. Why would you, why would you ever think drinking was a good idea? But there's so many variables but th- and that's the thing, right? That's where you have to stay vigilant. You could be 15 years sober, and I'd, I'd argue 15 years of sobriety, you're in a lot m- more stable place than 15 days of sobriety. Yeah. But you're still not invincible. It's still a decision. Then every day you're deciding. You're still deciding. Every, every yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a key point. In in 12 step and AA, that's the big thing. 20 f- or uh, one day at a time, 24 oh. hours. Just like, just for today, I'm going to stay sober. And then tomorrow's a new day, right? So, and you build upon that momentum of the daily swings where eventually you're two years, three years, four years sober, but you're still just enjoying the daily process of, of in and out, right? It's like, again, exercise, right? You look at exercise and you go, I want to be able to do that one day. You're like, that's great, but you got to be able to put the work in day in, day out. And then, so you just start putting the work in day in, day out. Next thing you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I achieved my goal. I did it. Yeah. I know I, I, 
I benched a certain weight or I did this. <laughs> I, I made, I accomplished the goal that I was trying to accomplish on all I did was focus on one day at a time until I got there. And that's the big thing with sobriety. But again, I listened to a really good, uh, actually another podcast, Andrew Huberman. Have you ever yeah. 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 He does one with Anna Lemke about addiction and, uh, he, he has an analogy from one of his friends, but essentially I'm paraphrasing, but it's it, addiction is a lot like, or sobriety is a lot like driving, uh, driving a car down a, a never ending highway. Uh, it seems like you seems like a bit of a, a long, boring task, but reality is if you know where the shoulder is, um, it can be kind of a relaxing drive, right? You're on the, you're on the highway, you know, where the shoulder is, you know, where your boundaries are. You're just going to enjoy the drive, but you take your hands off the wheel and you're probably going to end up in the ditch right away. Right. So you need to stay vigilant. And I always tell it to clients, like, you could be 20 years of sobriety and people get, I mean, you get confident, right? You start thinking, ah, I feel good. Like I, I could have a little bit, this and that, or I could be a social drinker. And it's just like that neurologically just doesn't work that way for most people. So you don't have an addictive personality at all. I don't know. Like I, I think there's a, it's hard to say like personality wise. I don't know if there's like an addictive personality. There's people who get very invested in certain things. It's hard. I don't really know. I, it, it, yeah, it depends. Addictive personality. I mean, you could look at most, I played, I could play World of Warcraft back in the day all day. Like <laughs> I, I just loved it. Right. Does that mean I have an addictive personality or is that just because the game, because it's just so fulfilling and lots of people got hooked, could play that game for 10 hours straight. It's designed to keep you it's there. designed to keep you there. Right. Yeah. So is that because my personality is making me drive that way or is that because the game it's so it's like they had a legit R and D team. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> What's the fastest you've seen somebody go from rock bottom to success? It's hard because we don't really get to measure success. Because if there was a way to follow up with people, it'd be great. But seven days, I don't know what happens when people leave. That's the hard part. So you are just one step. You're one piece of the big puzzle. Yeah. It's like we're like the first like four pieces of the puzzle. And then I don't ever get to see if the puzzle actually gets finished or not. (laughs) Until someone comes along and just like rips all the pieces down and then has to have to restart the puzzle. And I'm like, Oh, I never really got to see what happened or it, did it even get completed? <laughs> did it get halfway? All I know is we're back to building those four pieces again so or putting those four. When do people come see you then? How does it, how do people find you guys? Um, usually just like, it's, it's usually the first step for most people in terms of like, uh, and I've talked to most people just like they go online, they Google like what to do. And detox is usually the first step because you got to be medically stable again before you can make those major psychological decisions or make major life decisions. Um, but they will, yeah, usually reach out to us, call us. There's no referral needed. They just, uh, we have an intake worker. They'll call and just say, hey, I think I need help, yada, yada, yada. Uh, if they don't fit the criteria, which is very rare, like someone says, uh, I haven't used for three weeks um, or maybe my, your drinking isn't to the point where it's like totally out of control problematic we might try to refer to like a an outpatient counselor to do like in in person counseling and then maybe community the goal is to do community based recovery right like i tell clients all the time like you can't continue to just hop from one treatment center to another hoping hoping you're going to get sober right you have to actually be able to go out and exist in society and implement the tools that you're learning from these treatment centers to maintain your sobriety uh so some people you know they're like you know I've, i i drink three times a week uh, it's kind of starting to interfere with my life, blah, 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 blah. Um, we say, you could come here. But they're also like, well, you know, I work full time. I don't have time to put a full week aside. Okay, well, why don't we do community-based stuff? Here's a number to call these people. You can meet with a counselor. 
You can go to AA meetings, just print off a meeting list online. They can do community-based stuff right away without needing the... Because, I mean, if you're only drinking three times a week, depending on what you're drinking, your withdrawal is probably not going to be insane, depending how long you've been doing it, right? Like, you can kind of... You can recover from that with no major medical complications. Um, but with, you know, the heavier people drinking every day, sometimes a 40 a day, a 66 mm -hmm. a day, it's like, okay, well, let's get you on the list. We'll get you in here as soon as we can. So they can take the medicine. So we can get you the medicine so we can get you stable. The irony with that is, and, and you can, you can go to a hospital, you can go to um, a medic clinic and get the protocol medication for, for alcohol withdrawal. Uh, I believe even opiate withdrawal and then try to do it at home by yourself. But a, it's, it's just hard for a lot of people. You're at home, you're in a comfortable environment. You're, you're, tri you're, you're triggered by everything around you. Uh, and B, you can't mix the two. You don't want to mix the two. So they say, well, you're going to be given a drug that's going to help with alcohol withdrawal. But if you drink while you're on it, you can cause major complications. So it's very hard for an alcoholic to get sober enough to the point where they can take those drugs, right? Because you, you, if you're drunk, you don't want to take that, right? So you need probably eight to 10 hours of sobriety before they can start to medicate you with those substances, um, which can be hard in general. Um, wow. So it's easier for us to say, look, you just come in here. The hard part again with that is, so, and that's actually why COVID didn't, for a lot of people who don't know this, they didn't shut liquor stores down. Liquor stores were considered essential during COVID, right? I don't know if you remember that. They left all the liquor stores open. People were like, while well, they're shutting down like <laughs> everything else, gyms can be essential, but liquor stores are considered essential. The reason they do that is because people who drink alcohol need that alcohol to prevent withdrawals from happening, to prevent those medical complications. From, di from, 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 them from potentially dying. dying. Yeah. So that was actually, that was real. It was a medical reason why, at least that's, I argue, that probably the biggest reason. That, there'd be no reason why they, but that's, that's the reason why. If you're going cold turkey off alcohol and you've been drinking at 2640, 66 a day uh, for months to years, you can have some serious side effects, right? So you're cutting off the supply to this seemingly, you're cutting off the supply to somebody who, who, who actually needs it. It's not like the, it's not for the casual drinkers who feel it's essential to have their bottle of wine every Saturday night. It's for the people who are like drinking every single day. And if they stop, the hospitals are going to get extra flooded with people going through major withdrawal versus hospitals beds being reserved for people who have COVID, right? Oh, that's what yeah, we needed to, yeah. we need to prevent as many hospital related issues as possible. So, yeah. and that's the irony is when I talk to people, I say, look, <laughs> we probably looking at about a one to two week wait. Like, well, I, I really, like, I, I haven't drank, like I want to quit right now. And I'm like, look, the irony is you're going to go into severe withdrawal. You can go to a medic clinic or a hospital and get the withdrawal medication. If you feel you want to try and do it at home, the irony is until we get you in here, essentially you have to keep drinking. And I, that's the, that's the weird thing. So I, it's like, I, I, this is going to sound weird, but I would just, I would continue in the behaviors that you're continuing to do until we can get you in here. Because realistically the amount that you're drinking and the amount that you've been consuming, your withdrawals could be medically severe. And I wouldn't want you to just be at home and all of a sudden have a seizure. Right. So it's weird. It's like, Hey, I want to get sober today. It's like, okay, well we, we can't do that today. It's probably going to be about a week or two. So just keep using a little while longer, which for most people, if they've been using months to years, isn't a big deal, but it's a weird kind of oxymoron, like paradox thing where it's like, in order to get sober in a safe way, you need to keep drinking until we can get you in here. Well, so. in order to live long enough to yes. get sober. Yes, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much how it works. It's such, I remember telling a guy on the phone the first time when I realized when I learned everything about alcohol withdrawal, I'm like, this is going to sound weird, but you need to keep drinking until 
we can bring you in here. They're like, uh, okay. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. That's what makes it complex then. Definitely. Yeah. There's so many things. Yeah. There's, and a lot of stuff that people don't realize. Like I didn't know that until I started working there either. That alcohol was such a, a complex withdrawal, such a medically intensive withdrawal that the irony of, of having to continue drinking despite not wanting to is really what's going to keep you stable enough until you can to get sober. So, yeah. So what have you found is a commonality in people that come to the, the center? Like, what are we looking at? Personality traits? You're looking Anything at- that you found com- in common? I would say not, not everyone, but a, a common one. It would be the, the opposite of what I talked about earlier uh, in regards to that self-awareness accountability thing. I think a lot of people lack that self-awareness and going to detox is that first step of self-awareness where they're like finally realizing I got a problem, but it's in the very infant stages of, of, of that awareness, right? And then at the end, again, you go to meetings, AA meetings and stuff like that, people have this like ruthless self-awareness. Like, yeah, I screwed up because I didn't do this and I didn't do that and I need to, I need to do better. It's like, there's that locus of control that's huge. I don't know if you heard that term in psychology. A locus of control is where we, it's the extent to which we view we can control the events that happen in our lives. Oh yeah. Right. You can control the next dice roll or something. Yeah. Yeah. If if you felt like you could control the next dice roll, I'd say your locus of control is like way too high. So that's obviously a bad one. If you feel like you have absolutely no control over your life and you feel helpless about everything, that's way too low. Um, I think you need to have, you need to have that healthy balance where people can look at the things that are going on in their lives and the reason why they might be using and go, okay, I, if I make these fixes and make these changes, I can better my life. Whereas a lot of people, and, and that's where I think where the variance comes in. Um, that's where the self-awareness is a, the important part. I think when the self, the self-awareness is there, it increases or sometimes decreases the level of locus of control. Um, but at least it's there. So, right. So if someone comes in, their self-awareness is just beginning. I think our goal is to kind of increase that locus of control to the point where people can go, look, it's not going to be easy. I think obviously like being honest is, is, is the best thing. I think too many times people, I try not to be like, yeah, you know what? You guys you come here seven days, good housing. You'll be sober. It'll be great. Your life will be amazing from here on out. It's like, no, you realistically, you're here for seven days. If you walk out, of, you should walk out of here nervous and anxious and scared. Cause I've seen people walk out of here cocky thinking, yeah, man, I got it under control. And you're like, nope, no, you don't. And they relapse right away. Cause they you just, you do, can't be too cocky. You have to be humbled, but confident that you're able to, um, do the things you need to do to stay sober. And that's kind of the, what I try to instill in people when they leave. And I kind of like it when people take that to heart and then they're ready to leave. And the irony is people don't want to leave after seven days. They start, you meet people, you know, in a similar mindset. They've gone through similar things. You're comfortable. Cravings are lower. There's no major triggers. Yeah. The food is great. We have like in-house chefs that cooks. So that's always sweet. Um, but I, but they say, oh, I'm Kale, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about leaving. I'm like, you should be. It's, it's a big step. Life is going to throw stuff at you and you have to be able to, you know, have to be prepared for it. You can't, you know, it's a coping mechanism ultimately using certain substances. So uh, relying on that coping me- mechanism to deal with uh, what life throws at you is obviously the reason what got you here in the first place. The goal for that seven days is to try to change the thinking around that. Again, most times people don't, even in seven days, aren't going to make a major mindset shift. Uh, but it's enough to get the ball rolling and then you have to be able to build momentum in the community, working with counselors. And some people feel like seven days isn't enough. So they go to uh, 28 day programs. Okay. How easy is it for them to go from the seven days with you guys and then hit it, hit that 28 day program immediately? See, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. That's the hard part. 
because normally uh, it's not easy. And we have to try to stress that to people. There's just such a, there is a, so we, we don't do direct referrals. Sometimes Calder will have an opening and people can somehow, they get lucky, they get in right from us. Usually it's one to two months. So there's always, there's that gap. So again, there's so much friction involved in getting to the next step. Yeah. Which is a, it's a pro and a con. Ideally we'd be able to just get people from detox into Calder. What we normally do is we say, get the Calder date first, then we'll bring you into detox. Then you go straight there. Cause mm. that's the more, the most logical route. Um, but you know, there's people who come in for detox and they get some, you know, if they could, just a month, right. If you can, if for a month, if you can, um, meet with your counselor and stay sober for that month and then continue to go to Calder and approve upon what you're already doing. That's even, that's good too. But yeah, there is that usually one to two month wait to get into Calder. It, again, I, I'm using ballpark estimates. It, it, it Sometimes it's only a couple of weeks. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes it might be longer than two months. It depends on numbers, bed availability. But the big thing is I think people, you have to, and we, we don't even allow people to have their workers call in for them anymore. So if somebody calls in and says, hey, I want to get more, or a mother calls in and says, hey, I want to get my son on the list. It's like, okay, we need to talk to your son directly because he's the one that should be calling us because he's the one that needs this, right? He's, the one, he's the one that needs to make the conscious decision like I'm done using these substances. Uh, it's unfortunately the workers and the family members that want it more than that person, right? And that's the hard part communicating to them that look, until your son or daughter or family member decides that they want to be here, we can't put them on the list and we can't book them in unless they're actually dedicated to showing up. So they, we have to talk to them, get their information directly from them, which is, to me, it seems like the, a simple step, right? If you can't pick up the phone and, and talk on the phone, you clearly don't want to make that type of investment or that decision yet, right? So that's one thing that we've kind of implemented of just like, we need to speak with that person directly because that person has to show some initiative, right? How much has that increased your success rate? I think, I think quite a bit. Like, so we used to do, oftentimes when our numbers are low, there's a brief program. And we just say, hey, look, just like pull someone from the brief into the social. Uh, and I, I don't think it's, and before we used to just kind of like, just bring people in, not willy nilly, but like, they just, they, they want it now. And then you're like, all right, sweet. And then we bring them in, they leave like two hours later or they leave the next day. I think it's helped. I think the average bed stay is about four days. Okay. Whereas I feel like before it was shorter than that because people would again, hey Something man, you want to get you want to get sober today? Sure, I get a free meal, I get I get to hang out, I get some medication to make me feel better, take a bit of a break, and then after three days when I'm feeling better, I'll go back out and start using again because I got a nice little you know free place to stay, yeah. full belly, everything's good. So yeah, there's certain strategies we have to try to prevent that. Um, just you know, but I think that's there needs to be some buy-in. That's what we, that's what I think they try to do by encouraging people to see outpatient counselors for referrals to treatment programs that you're buying in with that person. And then when you go to Calder, after you're done, you can continue to see that person. You go back to that person and say, Hey, you know, Calder was good. I want to continue working with you on a, maybe once every two weeks, just meet up, discuss how life's going, you know, Hey, I'm struggling, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, let's connect you to these, this resource or that resource sponsors. So the sponsors are usually people who they've been through the AA NA program usually uh, they're really heavily involved in that. They've been usually had a, a few years of sobriety. They you can get a sponsor as somebody who goes to NAAA, uh, and that person basically is depending on the level of relationship you have, like an on-call sobriety like guide or support. Ooh. So it's like my sponsor. You know, it's a lot of them will say like call me anytime, or you meet up with coffee, and this is someone who's not necessarily a counselor, but they've been through it. 
Oh, kind of like so a they mentor. Have, they have real experience. Real with experience. Addiction. Yeah. Cool. Like, a, like a mentor that you can meet with, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night and you say, Hey, I'm, I'm struggling. You give them a call. Like I'm struggling. I feel like using, I just found out some bad news. They'll talk to you on the phone or sometimes they'll say, let's go grab some McDonald's and chat, chat. Cause they're like, they're basically like a mentor. They're trying to help you stay sober. Not necessarily like, again, they're not, they're full of wisdom. They're not like qualified counselors that you'd find at like a sturdy they're stone not, they're center. They're enable them. Because they yeah, but they understand is. addiction more yeah. than, yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, ideally, in a perfect world, you'd have counselors, qualified people who understand addiction who also have been through it themselves. But like anything, you're not going to have, and there's some people like that. Some of the best counselors that, I've, that, I, that I work with are people who sh- suffered from addiction throughout their lives or in a previous part of their life. So uh, they totally get it. Nice. And it's, it's cool to see them work their magic with some of the clients because they're just like, I, just, I, I don't have that that level of understanding. And so what was the biggest misconception you had that got expelled in the eight years that you've been working at the center? The willpower one was big, recognizing that it isn't really about willpower. It's more so like discipline. It's structure. It's like anything. Like, you know, I've, I, I've, I tell clients all the time too, like I go to the grocery store when I'm hungry <clears throat> and uh, I'll buy like a tub of ice cream, tell myself I'm only going to have like a, a small scoop every day like in theory this tub should last me like a week um if i have x amount every day versus and then i tell myself that but yet after two or three days the whole thing's gone and i'm like how does that happen because i'm clearly eating weight so that similar thing happens with addiction right guys will buy a 12 pack and just say yeah if i have a beer with supper over the next 12 days i'll it'll be fine but then that one beer for the first supper turns to two the next night to three the next night and then four the next night and then just steamrolls out of control so from that angle it allowed me to like really sympathize with like okay so in the same way that i can't control simply not consuming ice cream is the same way that a lot of people can't control consuming a substance which is way more addictive yeah and you have most of your life than ice cream in 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 yes yes i have a pretty i'm very fortunate i got a good family like i've had no serious major traumas so alongside that life's hard enough as it is and then i can only imagine what people go through so again it's not it's not this willpower thing where even you you need to exert a little bit of willpower in certain things like there's going to be times where you're like i I don't want to go to this aa meeting because i'm tired or whatever i don't want to exercise even though i know it's good for my mental health um there is a little bit of that but for the most part it's just this concept like i met some really talented strong-willed hard-working people that just simply that energy just gets misdirected i think and it just it, it doesn't get applied to their addiction. Like I, I've met people who run their own businesses and they work their arse off from seven in the morning till like six o'clock at night. And then, and, and like hard labor too. And then go home and drink from like six thirty to 12, sleep from 12 to five and then get up and go drive whenever half hour to work again and do that day in and day out, hung over working their butts off. And I'm like, how? But it's just like that energy is like, and they're so functional, but that energy is so invested in like working hard towards their job and finances and things like that. They just need to like redirect that into. So a lot of times it's just, it's just mismanaged, mismanaged, like Resource, energy resources, resources mental, to some degree. Mental fortitude. Yeah. Like you use it all at work. Like, like drug, I met like drug dealers who are like super intelligent in terms of like their ability to like understand certain things. I'm like, man, if you could just apply that into like an actual business you would kill it like you would actually probably be you know or like yeah it, it's crazy it's such a mixed bag of people mm. car salesmen who and furniture sales like guys who are super good at sales and like smart 
and can like they understand human behavior and they understand sales to a degree but yet they can't get past that to understand their own addiction right or if i've met phd physicists before super intelligent people um and you're like masters in engineers i think a lot of times with the intelligent people though they often think oh i'm too smart to be this i'm not like these other people uh i can figure this out on my own and that's what i always say it's not Again, when I when I first started, addiction was like a logical thing. You're either using or you're not. Stop using drugs. I wasn't that ignorant, but I mean that's generally the 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 logic behind it. Uh, but it's way more than that. And I think people try to outsmart the concept, and it's just it's it's you're dealing with human behavior, which isn't always rational. That's the fundamental thing, and that's something I think that the misconception that a lot of people fail to see is that like we don't always make rational decisions. And the more you learn about how irrational humans are, the better off you are at understanding addiction, I think, for the most part. And for me, that was a big thing where I was like, okay, I'm not dealing with, it's not an XYZ situation that I'm dealing with when I'm dealing with this, this person or that person. It's, there needs to be, there's missing pieces and there's ways to like try to, uh, there's pragmatic changes you can make, but there's behavioral changes and cognitive changes that need to happen at the same time for this person to truly get out of this addiction. Uh, and it's not all just like a, a logical willpower, X, Y, Z, do this, do this, do this, and you're, you're fixed kind of thing. It's like a lot of it's, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. So yeah, a lot of nuance to it. Then. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. Cause that misconception you had is the same that I had then. Yeah. And the same that PhD probably that, yes. that PhD had. Yeah. So it can really addiction can kind of strike anybody. For sure. I'm a dentist. Like I said, million dollar businessmen. It, it, I think it definitely tends to strike. Uh, it's hard because there's that kind of, there's a bias towards our people who have money and who are functional generally don't rely on detox per se. Some of them will pay for private treatment programs or some of them will rely on other means. Uh, like detox is publicly funded. It's all provided by SAS Healthcare. So that's great. Um, but it does definitely skew towards people who are don't have the, the tons of cash to go to a private treatment center or people who have tons of resources and supports. So a lot of times there are people who are obviously like homeless, a lot of that. But again, there's been dentists, retired dentists, businessmen. I've met like lots of like people who you wouldn't think that are like, oh, this guy doesn't fit the typical criteria for what you'd think an addict would be. He's, wealthy, successful, has a family, but his cocaine addiction is getting out of hand because he's, he's doing it all the time, right? So it's like, and that's that's actually, there's been some some tough ones with people like that where it's, it's not necessarily convincing people they have a problem, it's convincing them that they should probably be there because they come in and they see how sketchy it is because it is, it's in a rough part of town and you got a guy who's maybe a wealthy businessman and he looks around and he goes, I'm not staying here. And you go, uh, I think he should. It's probably good. And his wife's crying and she's trying to convince him to stay. And I, I just try to be like, look, man, stay for half an hour. I'll give you a tour. Go out for a smoke with everyone because smoking's great. I mean, smoking cigarettes is bad, but we do smoke breaks and you people connect during smokes. When, when a group of people are smoking together, there's just a connection. <laughs> it's like they all share the same vice and they're just like, we're all the same person just out here hacking a dart in minus 25. Um, but, and then and I give him a tour. He's still just a grumpy, did not want to be there. Then he goes outside, has a smoke. He comes back and he goes, I was like, it's not that bad here. Eh? He goes, yeah, that's all right. And then he stayed for the full seven days. And at the end of it, I said, I told you it wasn't going to be that bad. He's like, yeah, it was, it was okay. It was good. I'm glad I came. I'm like, oh, it's good. And so it's always like that. People, you know, it, it really gets you past the judgment of 
recognizing that like, I'm not like those people. I'm better than those people. And then you get into a group with them and you start to hear stories and their stories are very similar to yours and you all have the same problem. And they go, I had one guy come in and he just like halfway through like day three went, uh, just raised his hand in the middle of like group and was just like, I just want to apologize. Uh, I was super miserable the first few days I came here. I thought I was better than everyone. I thought I wasn't like you guys. I thought I wasn't like a an addict and thought my problems weren't as bad as your guys's. And I recognize now that like, a lot of your problems are actually worse. And like, I, I'm no better than anybody here. It was good. He was like, I just want to want to say I'm sorry for if I came off as judgmental because I recognize now that I'm like, I'm, I'm in the same boat as everyone else here kind of thing. Cause you'll get people who think they're better than everyone, but also people who think their lives are so bad that they, they need like extra sympathy. Like you don't get it. I'm using way more than you. My life is way worse than yours. <laughs> if I had your life, I wouldn't be sober right now or I'd be sober right now. So it's like, this, <laughs> it can become it, it, it becomes like this weird hierarchy where there's people who think they're too good and people who think their lives are too miserable and they, they want like credit for it or something, or they feel like they're different than everybody. And it's like, no, 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 you guys are all, you guys are all here for the same reasons, regardless of your backgrounds, regardless of religion, regardless of whatever it's, it's all the same boat. And usually we've had guys from different gangs in the same, and there's no fights very rarely a little bit of drama once in a while, but it's usually just a little bit of arguing is the most I've really had to deal with. I've never physically never seen a fight on many of my shifts break out, never seen anything. So it's interesting. You'd be surprised with just this sense of like cohesiveness. That's another misconception then. What makes it so that environment diffuses the violence? I think it's just, it's a very peaceful environment in general and it's so laid back and there's just really no, there's no need for it. Like nobody, nobody cares, <laughs> you know? Oh, so what do you mean nobody cares? Like you could be the biggest, baddest gangster or the biggest baddest toughest dude in the world i met guys who are like ex-mma fighters who are like juiced out the nicest guys ever but you're like man this guy could like he looks scary like if he got mad he'd like beat everyone up here he'd beat everyone up that's here um but the nicest people ever. like it just it's just all we do is like hang out watch movies play board games like how could you want to start a fight after that and like talk <laughs> about our feelings like it's it's a pretty open, safe environment. So I don't think there's really no hostility where people think that they need to act out at all. So that's one of the benefits of it only being seven days is people don't get too comfortable. Yeah. You can stay on good behavior for seven days. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when the first three, you feel like garbage. <laughs> and then on day four or five, you're just finally starting to feel a little bit better. Day six and seven, you're focusing on what you're going to do when you leave. Oh, man. That, that's a... That's a pretty big deal to know when you're all vulnerable together that you can support you can you support each other. Mhm. What's well, weird that there's no there's no environment where you can just do that as a regular person. Like I go into a group we just call it circle check, but you basically just go in. Like you see in a movie everyone sits in a circle and I'm like in a, like you see in like jail where they'll have like a jail counselor and everyone just and I just go around the room like Let's talk. Like, well, how are you feeling today? Any questions or concerns? What's something interesting that you have planned for when you leave here? And people will just open up and talk about their stuff, similar to like an AA or NA meeting. And they just like get it all out. Some people cry. Some people will laugh. You just get a wave of emotions going around and then you just introduce yourself, whatever. Um, so, but there's really nowhere. Like if we had a, an AA, NA meetings are similar, very similar to that. You just talk about your struggles, talk about how you're feeling, whatever any issues or anything like that. There's really nowhere, like if me and you, if we're struggling, I mean, you have friends. I mean, usually that's where you turn to, but there's no like open group where you just go in there and be like, you know, lately I've just been 
feeling like I lost my sense of purpose and just like talk. And then you have a bunch of other people, guys or girls. And they say, yeah, I've been feeling the same thing lately. Like what are, and then talk about strategies and all that stuff. There's really nothing that there's nothing out there for people that aren't necessarily struggling with an addiction, right? There's NAA that's all for people for who are struggling, but there's really no one just for like plain Jane boring people like us to just go and and talk about our feelings in an open group like that. Right. Which would be an interesting, interesting thing that I'm aware of anyway. I don't really know there is it's not very promoted that's one thing that i i uh it definitely adds to the cohesiveness and it it adds to the uh the openness and the vulnerability of of being in in those settings aana or, or detox how, how do you make it so that people feel comfortable being vulnerable in in the center it's weird man it just happens people it's it's the other people there i mean obviously like i'll go in I'll go in and just sit down and we'll do like I call the, the circle check and I'll just say, Hey, this is what we're going to talk about. We'll go around the room and we start going around the room. And I like to do the interesting, something interesting about yourself or an interesting hobby that you have. Cause it allows people to talk about something they're passionate about. And that seems to really unlock a few doors. And some people will go, they'll go around and they'll say, Hey, I'm, my name's so-and-so. I'm just not comfortable sharing right now. Maybe it's like their first or second day there. You go, okay, that's fair. Um, but then usually by day three or four, they see everyone else starting to share and then they'll usually open up. But sometimes it's like, they're like, oh, I don't know. I just, it's like my name's so-and-so and I don't really have anything interesting about myself. I'll kind of probe, but you know, have anything interesting about yourself? One girl was, I was like, you said you like doing art. She's like, oh yeah, I actually really love doing art. And then she's like completely started ranting and she's like opened right up. And I was like, actually we have paint supplies here if you wanted to use those. And she's like, really? Oh my God. And she was like totally quiet, shut down before. So I gave her these paint supplies and she like almost started crying. She was like so pumped, so quiet. And she actually drew me a painting. It's super ah, funny. Yeah. What'd you do with it? I still have it. I keep everything that people have given me. I'm going to put it all in a, I have it in like a storage thing right now but i want to get one of those like big frames because a lot of it's like pictures and little art pieces yeah. and then put like a collage and like a frame and then frame it because i think it's cool but yeah and then she and then she actually reached out to me on facebook and was just like hey i just want you to let me know i'm doing really good i'm enjoying sobriety i'm like sweet so those ones are great but those are very rare maybe <laughs> maybe four times a year that happens if that <laughs> so when it hits it hits yeah it's nice it's like oh that's good and my strategy too when people leave is I tell everybody, come back, come visit us, let us know how you're doing, bring coffee and donuts. So if I tell that to everybody, I eventually get a pyramid scheme basically of everyone bringing coffee and donuts on a, like a weekly, daily basis. So it's so far, it's been every once in a while. So I'm like, well, Kale said bring coffee and donuts. I'm like, my plan's working. It's like people are staying sober and they're coming back to bring donuts. So I'm like, this is, yeah. You found a way to win-win. Yeah, yeah. I get to see and how people are doing. It's nice that they check in, but then we also get donuts. So it's sweet. Well, yeah. That's perfect. It's good. All right, man. Should we call it? Sure. Yeah, this <laughs> is great. That's perfect. Beauty.